0: 1 Corinthians chapter 3. is where we get to be again this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 really concludes some thoughts that he Paul introduced in chapter 1, that is divisions, factions, schisms, um, boasting that's going on, the contrast between wisdom, kind of false wisdom if you don't mind. Well, it's wisdom by somebody's standard, and foolishness by, again, somebody's standard, and, and vice versa, how that works out. But the these different um, contrasts he, he returns to here at the end of chapter 3, another one being uh, character, characterized by this age or this world versus God's perspective and a kingdom mindset. And he really is addressing this whole issue of what, what's the source of these, uh, these, these conflicts among you? And why are you boasting so much in people? What, what, make, what sense does that make in the ministry of the gospel? And so he is really addressing these things. The large issue has to do with wisdom. And as he introduced it back in chapter 1, and, I don't know, verse he the whole section, verses 18 through the rest of that chapter, talks about the contrast of wisdom. But he says, like in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so he's identifying the the wisdom, really the false wisdom, the worldly wisdom, that is directing the thoughts and attitudes and actions of the Corinthian church which does not lead toward unity. It does not lead toward the exaltation of Christ and his glory and his, his uh, crucifixion particularly, right? The cross of Christ, Paul preaches. Instead, it builds up individuals, which is so weird. So no, not as weird. It is sacrilegious for us to build up ourselves at the expense of Christ. The wisdom of God is displayed in Christ and you are saying your wisdom resides in yourself or your wisdom resides in your teachers. It doesn't. Go to God. And he so, so many times in chapters one and two and three, Paul is directing the the Corinthian church's mindset, perspective, attitude even to God, a Godward perspective, letting God be God, letting Christ be the ruler of his church, letting Christ be exalted in his church, and it's not just letting, he's gonna do it one way or another. You can you can be for him, which I think we just sang a song about being on God's side, but we want to truly be on God's side. And it that means that we humble ourselves before Him and say, I need you. Every hour I need you. Lord help me at this time. So he is answering these things. Wisdom or philosophy, he introduced that that term earlier, the wise man, verse 20, chapter one. Uh, the wise man, the wisdom that, that comes not based on God's revelation, but based on human intellect or rationality or reason. And Paul's going to return again to that idea. But we're talking about the big ideas, big questions of philosophy that have been asked throughout the ages and things really pertaining to... life, origin of life issues, where did I come from and where am I going? So we have both the, the present and the future aspect of it. But even in the midst of that, how I ought to live right now? How should I conduct my life? What, what kind of uh, morals or, or rules or principles ought to, con- ought to direct my life in this age? And so wisdom or philosophy has a, a specific, or not even a specific, a variety of answers to the, those questions. And even the question, what happens after death? What is the future? Uh, because we can't, we can't know that. And, and even um, Socrates, Socrates, as he is dying, he, he had the question, you know, I'm not afraid of death. This is the greatest, it's kind of like another guy said about 10 years ago death is, is a great adventure. I mean, for one who wants to answer questions or to ask questions anyway, death is the great time for us to find out what comes after life. Well, thankfully, we don't have to speculate on any of these questions. Where did, where did life come from? What's the meaning of life? How ought I to live? And what happens after death? We have a book, right? There is a book right here written for us, and we can go to God's uh, word, his revelation, to inform us and to then help us carry on through life so we don't need to be hoodwinked by the, again, the philosophy of the age that, that answers these questions in a, in a way that does not include God or includes God kind of at arm's length But no, we need God right down in the midst of this and informing everything about it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 is where we pick up. And just to the end of the chapter, let me read this text and we'll look at it more carefully. Verse 18 says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they're useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. He has two commands here in in, uh, these verses, verse 18, and they're the same command, really. Verse 18 says, let no man... Here, deceive himself. And then in, in verse 20, uh, 21, he says, Let no man boast. So let no man deceive himself. And that has to do with an internal perspective. First, he's addressing issues of, of an individual person. He says, as, as you think of yourself, make sure you think of yourself not as wise in this age, but wise according to God. So changing our individual perspective, but then in, the, in verse 21 and following, change your perspective of other people. Don't boast in men. Nobody should boast in men. And we'll look at both of these commands here individually. But he says here, verse 18, let no man deceive or trick or, or lie to himself. It's the idea of, of seeking, speaking a truth that isn't a truth, but believing that truth as if it was and staking your whole life upon it. Let no man deceive himself. It's a self-deception. Because a lot of times we, we think, at least, that we can deceive other people by how we present ourselves, knowing full well we're not that person, but we ought to hold up this this face to other people. And Paul says, why? What? How, what advantage is that to you? Let down your guard. Be vulnerable. Be transparent with other people about your thoughts, your actions, attitudes. Righteously, so, not overly you know, being indiscreet about things and being uh, a stumbling block. We don't want to do that. but in terms of having a a outward appearance that is not who we are individually, that's called hypocrisy. Now in entertainment and movies and TV that's fine cuz you see people playing a part that they're not and you know I'm not a doctor but I play one on TV well don't go to them for medical advice just enjoy the show right? Don't do that. But when we are hypocrites in a church setting or in a marriage setting or a parenting setting and we're playing this but we're actually this that's that's wrong. That's wrong. That is self-deceptive and this kind of deception isn't just a mild thing. The same idea or de- uh, or process, practice of deception is what is described, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. This is not a good thing. Deception is a lie in this regard. Or in, in um, also in 1 Timothy chapter 2, talking about the deception that Eve endured in that regard. Uh, we see this command about do not de- be deceived, in again in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and verse 9, it says, do not be deceived, and he goes on and lists all these different wicked sins that... Those who practice those things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to see God in this regard. And so don't be deceived. You think you can get away with it. God is the judge. You think, you think God doesn't know these things? God doesn't know what's in your heart? You're, you've hid it so well that you're, you have deceived other people? No. You are self-deceived, and you need to change. You let no man deceive himself. In what regard, Paul? How do we deceive ourselves? If any man among you. And it's interesting how this this phrase is built in... Uh, as Paul wrote it, or Paul um, dictated it to his his uh, secretary, his amenuensis, uh, it's not well. The emphasis is that they present, or they think of themselves in this way, in relation to the assembly. In other words, it's not so much that the emphasis is there are people in the congregation that think this way. It is that people intentionally come to the congregation, presenting themselves as wise in this world or wise according to this age, but they're not really that way. So it's an intentional process that I'm coming in, or somebody's coming in self-deceived, but trying to deceive other people. And Paul says, don't. Let no man deceive himself and don't have anyone among you, uh, excuse me, don't have anyone who thinks that among you he is wise in this age. So it's that kind of emphasis. And again, so wisdom returns to those ideas, a conflict between wisdom of this age and how he says just becoming wise at the end of that sentence there. Well, I thought I was wise. No, you're wise according to this age, which is passing, passing away. It's, it's being abolished. It's being destroyed. God is opposed to the proud, uh, proud in heart, those who are, are self self-filled or fulfilled in their own selves, who think that they've got it all, they're, they are the cat's meow, they're the top drawer, they're the grade A, they're the, I, I know everything, you just ask me and I'll tell you. No, that's not the right attitude that we should come uh, to any portion of life in. In fact, quoting Socrates again, I know, and one of the things that he said repeatedly in various ways, I know that I don't know. I know my ignorance, and therefore he ask questions. Now, Socrates, I don't know that he was a believer, and he's in the Four hundreds, I believe, B.C., but uh, he had access perhaps to Jewish thought and the the God of Israel, and so maybe he had some of that. But his point is that if you are full of yourself, if you are totally convinced in your own mind of what is true, then you really can't be convinced about other things. You can't be filled. Or, as he's going to say in a little bit differently, uh, if we are full of ourselves, well, we can't be full of God at the same time. In fact, if you have a pitcher full of water and you'd rather have orange juice, well, I guess you could mix your concentrate orange juice stuff in there and stir it up and there you go. Or you can empty the water and get some all fresh squeezed orange stuff with the pulp. The pulp. got to have the pulp. I don't know what you like. But the point is you you can't be full of both things at the same time. You can't be full of the worldly wisdom. And so he says, you've got to empty that. You must become foolish. Foolish? Well, we don't want to be, uh, you know, well, Paul says later, we're fools for Christ's sake. But the idea is that you've got to become totally out of step with the reasonings of this world, the whole agenda of this world, and you must become wise before God because it really depends on our perspective. According to the world, hey... It's wisdom. This is good stuff. This is quality teaching. This is this is profound. And even to celebrate the fact that that uh, we are speaking profundities, that we are uh, saying things that you know, it's pretty smart. Pretty pretty. You know, he, he's using big words. He must be telling the truth. No, that kind of wisdom to the world is foolishness to God, because it's Godless. It it does not regard Him. It does not regard Christ. It does not adequately explain the issue, the needs that we have as just people made in God's image. It is foolishness to say that we can somehow save ourselves or figure out a better way of life apart from Christ. No, that, that's, not, that's not wisdom. That is foolishness before God. Let God be God and let every man be a liar. Romans 9 would teach us that. And so we want to have this other perspective, be out of step with the world, really 180 degrees out, you know, out of step with the world, but in step with God. And that is then we become fools, foolish, ignorant, almost even barbarian to the world, uh, clueless, you don't have a, a, a thought in your head, you're just, uh, and then it resorts to name calling, you're a bigot, you're, uh, you have a different phobias against different things, and you're, you're just mean-spirited, and you're, you're racist, and you're, all these things, wait a minute, what? No, because I am trying to affirm God's perspective on life, and death, and, and how we interact with each other, what is foolishness to the world is God's wisdom. Now, we need to be careful to say that it's not just, well, I'm a Christian, though, for I have God's wisdom. No, the way you have God's wisdom is by conforming your thought and your actions and your attitudes and desires, all those things, to God's word. It's not that, oh, well, we're the Christian people, so we have, we have the wisdom. No, we need to grow in wisdom. In fact, why would, why would John, or excuse me, James chapter 1 say, if any of you lacks wisdom, well, you're out of luck. You must not be a Christian then, right? No, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give you. God does not say, Oh, you should know better, you Christian person. No, let him ask of God and God will, will graciously give you. He won't chastise us or upbraid, I think is the King James Version, just find fault with us. He will graciously give if we acknowledge we have a need. God, I need your wisdom. I need your perspective. I need your thought, the world is saying this, and even, if you don't mind, because the world has got its tentacles into the church, capital C, church, Christendom, or however you want to refer to it, just Christianity, so-called, there's so much of worldliness in that, and you think, well, it's not just the world that's saying this, it's the church saying that we need to kind of compromise on this or compromise on that. We need to stand firm on God's truth. We need to speak the truth in love, we need to be very gracious in that regard. We need to question ourselves, question even our motives about different things. What are we, why are we doing this? Why are we thinking this way? Why are we speaking in this regard? We've got to be careful to avoid any kind of, well, what James later says, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, 4, chapter James 4, 4 says, you adulteresses, well, that's not a good, that's not a good thing. You adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. And he goes on and has his quotations from the Old Testament there. But he says, wait a minute. I thought we're just trying to get along. We're trying to make peace. We want to have, you know, just be at peace with people. And he says, you can't do it. They are at enmity. They are warring back with one, one uh, against the other. Guess which is winning? Guess which one will win? It's God. So you better be on God's side, right? We are on the Lord's side. Let's let's stay on that side. Now, as he again looks at this verse, he says, "You've got to become foolish, so you can become wise, so you may become wise." There is an element of Christianity, or or um, well, it goes in any discipline, I suppose, but particularly in the church, where oh, this means that we can't have um, opinions, or not just opinions. We can have opinions, but uh, it means that we kind of need to have. Indecision, or maybe just a looser theology. Maybe we need to be a little bit more timid in our doctrine, not so bold as some of our, you know, our reformer uh, people back 500 years ago or so. We need to be more um, nuanced in our in our approach to different things. Well, yeah, nuance is important, but when the Scripture says this, let's do that. Let's follow the Scripture. In other words, not a loose theology, a very tight theology. Paul's not calling us toward uh, a timidity or a, a, a sheltered, not a sheltered, a, a shell-shocked, I guess that's the kind of thing. You know, I, tried, I put this word out there on you know, my Instagram or my Facebook or my whatever, and people got mad at me, so I'm going to retract that. I'm not going to put that out. Be bold. It's God's truth. In fact, the truth of God is the only answer to all the wicked propaganda of the world. Uh, the truth of god 's word, and you think, well, what does God say about capitalism or Marxism or racism or all god 's word speaks to those these issues, and so we need to stand on god 's word instead of a loose theology. We need to have a strong and firm theology that or doctrine doctrinal stance that is strong on god 's word again, becoming foolish according to the world it 's a thousand ten thousand A million-year-old book, translated so many different times. Who even knows what God said or Isaiah said, if there was ever an Isaiah? What? To the law and to the testimony. Isaiah 8.20 says, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this, it's because they have no dawn. There's nothing going on up here. Except animosity, hatred, not toward you. You're just a proxy. They hate God. They hate God. Absolutely. And rightly so, because God is the just judge, and he judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And absolutely, they hate that whole idea of being accountable to God. Well, we all are. So get over it and run to Christ. That's the solution. The solution is run to Christ. Christ will, uh, is already the payment for sin, and God is satisfied in that. So all these things, he says, don't be so caught up with what the world celebrates. Look toward what, what Christ has accomplished. Get your confidence in Christ, even if it makes you an enemy of the world. Well, don't be an adulteress, in other words, as James 4 and verse 4 says. The reason, he says in verse 19, again, these are all just kind of wrapping up the thoughts that Paul has already introduced in chapters 1 and 2. He said this before, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Earlier in chapter 1, he, he had the other perspective. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. But who cares what the world thinks? We care what God thinks. He says the wisdom of the world is foolishness. We're going to be on God's side. We're going to make sure that we practice and 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 evidence and show forth His wisdom, His uh, understanding of the world. Because kind of like He made the world, everything is is under His authority. It is possessed possessed in a in a sense of ownership. Uh, everything belongs to Him, and that's how He wraps up this whole section. Everything belongs to God. And so, forget what the world says, or not necessarily forget it, but don't take it in in to, as an influential method or or input into the way that you think and view and want to live your life you live before god the wisdom of this world before god and that's where the standard is that's where we want to be careful to to stake our claim we're with god and we're going to honor him we're going to be out of the step with the world and he quotes and he quotes eliphaz can you believe this paul this is the one clear uh, well one of the clear Uh, quotations from the book of Job that is here in the New Testament and it is from Eliphaz's first speech right after Job gives his uh, woe is me, I wish I was never born wish I died at birth and why am I still alive kind of thing back in in chapter 4 or chapter 3 rather in in Job and so Eliphaz is speaking and it's interesting it's ironic again one of those comedic aspects of, of scripture Eliphaz is the one who said this he is the one he's talking about God he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And you think, yeah, God does catch the, the wise in their craftiness. Uh, Eliphaz, the Old Testament version, Paul is probably quoting the Septuagint in this regard, but he, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew version says, he frustrates the thoughts of the crafty so that their hands cannot attain success of sound wisdom. He catches the wise by their own craftiness and the counsel of the twisted is quickly thwarted. God is the one who catches, kind of like a, a trapper, uh, one who is, is, lies in wait and says, there, I mean, spring the trap, and there he is. But it's by their own craftiness, by their own schemes, by their own... Uh, the word here is, um, has to do with willing to do whatever it takes to get what I want. It's so a readiness to do anything, their craftiness. I mean, they, they have plotted out you know plan A. If plan A doesn't work, we can do plan B and plan C and D. And, but I think plan A will work. But even so, we've got some backup plans. We're going to get this evil thing done. I mean, these people plot evil on their beds, and God says, I catch them in their own craftiness. One prime example, and we're not quite there yet in the course of the year, but in Purim or the the Feast of Purim, as various people say, the notorious evil gangster type person Haman. Oh, shake all your stuff. Haman is the one who was crafty and scheming and just, it was all about personal vanity and vainglory and just wickedness. But he said, I'm not just going to destroy destroy Mordecai. Let's kill all the Jews. And the king agreed to it, not because he understood what was going on, but because of Haman's craftiness and, and trickery and so forth. And God says, I'm going to catch these people. Haman is a perfect example. Eliphaz is a perfect example because all the, the craftiness, all of their philosophical speech, all their worldly wisdom, the oh well, Job, is you're suffering because you sinned and all this kind of thing. And blessing uh, follows piety and all that nonsense. No, that's not how it works it, temporally. And so Eliphaz is frustrated. He's caught in, their own, in his own craftiness, in his own um, wise or philosophical sayings. But it's God who catches them. In other words, the world doesn't have a clue. And the world really isn't concerned about, unless the world isn't concerned about truth, except their own version of truth. And if you go against that presentation of it, then you'll be destroyed. You'll be canceled, ruined, whatever. And we've seen that throughout history. It's not a new thing, but it's, it seems just so powerful and so quick, how, how quickly uh, the world will jump on somebody who, who opposes their view of things. Well, ultimately, God is the one and he, he will catch. And we think, well I wish it would happen sooner than 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 later. I wish God would do it. God has his his plans. Leave vengeance to the Lord because God judges righteously and perfectly. Because we can get mistaken, oh I didn't know that. Well who he said that but he meant this over and so we can get confused about things, but God knows exactly what's going on. And he is the perfect judge sentencing kind of a situation. He gives a perfect uh, verdict and a perfect uh, penalty. And we can Let's leave the results to him. And God is merciful. Let's think of King David. How many times he sinned and did things wickedly before God. And even Samuel, he says, let me not fall into the hands of men because they won't be merciful. But God, you will show mercy. Let me fall into the hands, your hands. And that's what happens at the end of Second Samuel. So we, sorry, I gave that ahead. I don't know if we're going to read Second Samuel, but you can read it and find out. God is merciful. Let's come to him. But he's also the just judge. He also quotes this psalm, Psalm 94, Paul does here in in 1 Corinthians 3.20. Again, the scripture says, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. God knows what's going on up here. He knows the thoughts, but not just the thoughts. it's It's the deliberative process of trying to elevate self, you know, wealth power and all that kind of nonsense, but but having this intentional, deliberate resolve to do evil. God knows the reasonings of the wise. He knows exactly what's going on, the schemes of men, the the machinations of of what's going on. And even maybe they're not so evil because who likes when evil is so out there? It's, the evil people like to kind of hide under a veil of we're trying to help you. We're trying to do what's right we're trying to bless people or, or whatever kind of thing but they they have ulterior motives god knows god knows the lord knows the reasonings of these people and if you were to go back to um psalm 94 and verse 11 i think yeah psalm 94 11 this again the old testament says hebrew excuse me, hebrew yahweh knows the thoughts of man that they are vanity the psalmist says, of man, Paul says, of the wise, and it's really a, a subset of men. There, the emphasis is on the, the human mortality, mere mortal kind of men. Here, it's those who are saying, mere mortals, but saying things that that are so cunning, so crafty, and from that Job reference, but here uh, presenting uh, something that seems profound, seems, wow, I guess we ought to listen to them. They're the ones, I mean, they're... One of the reasons, humanly speaking, why King Saul was chosen, I mean, God is the one who chose him ultimately, but what was celebrated by the people, he's tall. He's head and shoulders above the rest, as if that's kingly, just because he's taller than everybody. He was not a righteous person. God chose him to show the need for David, a man after God's own heart, and a God directed from Benjamin to, to the house of Judah and the tribe of Judah and to David and then ultimately to our Lord Jesus who is the one perfect good king of all. So God knows, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. You can't hide from him. You can't, again, you can be self-deceived, but God is not deceived. And the end result is God knows that these things are useless. They're futile, they're empty, they don't amount to anything, but they sound so impressive, they sound so just so what, so so profound and so wonderful, which is even as we studied a Job, Eliphaz, boy, he makes some good points, and and build them, and and the uh, and you know, they kind of, hmm. Well, we should think about it. It is futile. It, it's, it's on the wrong base. It has the wrong assumptions. It leads to the wrong things. It's for selfish motives. It's not godly. Forget about it. They are useless. They seem to be powerful. They seem to be authoritative, but in fact, they are without any kind of help in our lives and so Paul says don't be deceived don't search after this wisdom because it's it God knows he exposes it he will expose it and now he turns his attention from the don't boast in yourself kind of thing now don't boast in other people verse 21 has this idea verse 21 says so then let no one boast in men because that's what they were doing remember their slogans back in chapter one hey you know I'm of Paul and the other people said, well, I'm of Cephas or Apollos. And it's well, I'm of Cephas. And then other people say, well, I'm of Christ. You know, I've got the, the, I'm the OG or whatever. No, let no one boast in men. Don't boast in men. Now, notice he's going to list it here in verse 32 or 22 rather, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. He does not list Christ because, of course, we're of Christ. We're, we're, oh, he's going to emphasize that. But again, those in the chapter one, those who said, well, I'm of Christ kind of really took the, the spiritual high ground and, and said, I don't need anybody to teach me because I have a, a close connection with God. And these are the same kind of people would say, would say that, you know, I really don't need the church. The church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of issues. I really have issues with organized religion. And so I'm just going to have my relationship with Jesus. That's wrong, too. You can't do that. Uh, not, not boasting in that thing. You boast in Christ, but not, not in that regard. He says, let no one boast in men. No, let no one have uh, such a high degree of confidence in a person, a person, a mere human person. Uh, they, they think, oh, but we have the special guy. We have the, the, uh, the whatever. It's kind of this idea of boasting in men, a smugness that, that settles into the, the congregation saying, you know, you know the apostle Paul, he was the one who founded our church. I don't know where you guys came from, but we are found by Paul. And then other people say, well, yeah, he's a good teacher, but Apollos, I mean, he's so eloquent, he's so learned, and, and he's from Alexandria, that so much philosophy and wisdom comes out of Alexandria, and Apollos is our guy. And other people, you know, I don't know, either of those guys, I've got the original, one of the, maybe not the first of the 12 apostles, but uh, the, the head one, right? Peter, Cephas, and so we, we attach ourselves to him. And Paul says, what are you doing? Remember, in, verse, in earlier in chapter three, I planted, Apollos watered. We're just farm laborers. We're just menial servants in the Lord's field or in the building. Why are you looking to us? Don't glorify us. Don't boast in men. And, you know, they, they say we have so and so as our teacher. Whom do you have? And it's just it's jealousy and strife and divisiveness. And we say, well, and we can quote any number of teachers and say, well, I I follow this uh, this this professor over here, this teacher. Great. Do you also listen to other voices? Maybe even some contrary voices. Uh, uh, you know, reviewing this book or, or talking about this. Or there, there's a lot to be gained. In fact, I was going to show the uh, theological pyramid. Uh, that it's not a physical pyramid. It's just a pattern of starting from the scripture. How do we get to the top? Assuming that the scripture itself and even the text of the scripture. Anyway, we talk about biblical theology and then we talk about, maybe the order is, is a little bit varied, but a historical theology. How did this church or how did the Jewish people understand this in the Old Testament? How does the church through the ages understand this thing? But it's got to be built. It's a pyramid. It's got to be built on the things underneath it. And that is sound doctrine, a proper hermeneutic, a proper way of interpreting the Scripture and consistency and uh, the anal- analogy of Scripture, so letting the Scripture interpret itself, and all these principles that then derive uh, the the uh, systematic theology, historical theology, and then the practical theology. What, is it, what difference does it make in our lives? But it's got to be founded on the Scripture. In other words, hey, you can read. You can read flaming heretics against the Scripture because it it shows you what are the issues that— the non-heretics, if you don't mind, the sound teachers are answering. What are the questions? What are the errors that p- these people are making regarding the deity of Christ or regarding the, the um, nature of the Lord's table or regarding uh, Sabbath day or something like this? What are these people saying, and how does it come back to the Scripture? How does it? How is it affirming what the Scripture says, or maybe not? Don't boast in men. Use them. Learn from them. But don't boast. Don't put your your unaware confidence in. Me even, I mean, good. I, I can put a jacket on, but good grief, I I want to lead you to the scripture. I want to come back to what the word says. Don't boast in who you have or who who you don't have, even uh, because I mean, sorry, we don't have your teacher at least, you know, kind of boast in that. I know your pastor is not, or whatever. We boast in God, and he cuts right to the issue because remember how he, the the slogan of the of the Corinthians says, "I am of," and they attach themselves to Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and there that the. the idea was that their ownership or their identity even was was in those teachers now again there's nothing wrong with paul apollos and cephas as they were and what they taught and and uh, god loves them and used them but to attach yourself to one person that's not right that's boasting in men instead what they ought to do and he goes on and describes it here let no one boast in men for all things belong to you and then he gives the idea here we have this, this list of, of individuals and, and ideas or, or uh, entities or however you want to understand it here in verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, again, Paul and Apol—Paul and, and Peter are apostles, uh, capital A, you know, top drawer, apostles of Christ, have seen the risen Christ. We had a direct personal commission to be an apostle. Apollos is one who's trained, very worked, Worked very closely, uh, well at least after Paul, and seems by the time that Paul's writing First Corinthians, was with Paul in Ephesus, and so these guys they're, they're approved workmen, right? First Timothy or Second Timothy two fifteen, or Second Timothy two two, uh, entrust this word to faithful men. These are these are quality people, but don't put your identity in them. All things belong to you; they you don't belong to them. Paul Apollosiphus the he talks about the world here. The world belongs to you, and you think well, hmm. That's something new. Uh, and the idea is not so much the world, because he's been talking trash about the world, right? The world is passing away, is being abolished. Well, it's kind of like inheriting uh, something that's about to be flooded by uh, this new reservoir and going to be, there's my land down there. It's not that idea. It's, it's the idea not of the moral or ethical aspect of the world and the spiritual aspect of the world, but the physical aspect of the world. You think, what? We have, isn't, didn't Jesus say back in, in uh, Matthew 5, the meek? or the gentle shall inherit the earth. It's a different word there. Earth having to do with the the ground versus uh, this word here, world, has to do with the whole kit and caboodle, if you don't mind. This is not the spiritual world. This is the physical world, the new heavens and new earth that is entrusted to be filled by God's people. And so Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, the lowly, the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And even Matthew 25 and verse 34 says, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And has to do with end times kind of things. So Paul says, you don't need to be bound to this world or the world system or even the practice of the world. The world belongs to you. I think, whoa, well, we, we're going to go start, and you know, I'm going to move into that place down the street because I don't need this place anymore. I've got this nicer. Somebody, I, it's mine, right? No, not in that sense. You trust God. He'll, he'll lead you forward. But the world belongs to you through Christ. He says even life and death. Life and death belong to us because the Christian's life is not just bound to this age. Again, for so many people, uh, they, the, the, the idea is, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's just make the best of it. And there's a, a phrase, uh, you only live once, going around here the last, well, forever, I suppose, but especially lately, where you better just suck the marrow out of life right now because who knows what's going to happen next, maybe nothing. No, we live... Now, because John seventeen three, this is eternal life, definitely. But this is just life to know God and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent to know that. And so we have this confidence that this life is not itself, and even a confidence that this life extends into the everlasting, uh, uh, you know, outside of time kind of thing. It's going to be into eternity. And so life belongs to us. Death even belongs to us. Christ, First Corinthians fifteen. There's, there's various reasons why Paul keeps that as the end doctrine. He concludes his letter mostly on, on that doctrine, the resurrection of Christ. And that's really the cream of the crop. That is the proof of our salvation. That is the evidence that God accepted the death, crucifixion of Christ, because God raised him from the dead. Done deal. It, it is accomplished. And so we don't have to have any fear of death. We don't need to be mastered by death. We don't need to have the... Idea. Hebrews 2 and verse 15 talks about the fear. Those who were in fear of death were held in slavery all their lives. Oh, no, it's, it's, death is conquered. It's one of the key aspects of 1 Corinthians 15, that death is a vanquished foe, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And death is swallowed up in victory by, Christ, Christ, um, by Christ's resurrection. And so we, didn't, we don't need to be fearful of death. In fact, if you don't mind, death is just the pathway to glory. Now, there are other means. God can call us into heaven, as he did with some other folks in history. But but typically, nobody stays here. We're going to die. And But it's not a death of ending our existence. It is the entrance into real life. It's entrance into Christ's own presence. And so these guys, Paul, Paul, Cephas, uh, the world, life, and death are all in uh, our, our possessions or ownership of us. And he even says, Present things what 's now, what has already come is ours, and even what is yet to come, and so he has this idea in Romans eight and uh, verse twenty eight we know very well he we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, and then he says in verse thirty seven in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, and so God is active in in life and death things that we are experiencing right now we don't have to be fearful of, we don't need to have to be uh, uh controlled by, we exercise the authority over those things. I'm not saying that we need we should just name it and claim it and say, I, I declare myself to be, you know, whatever I want. Uh, that's not what his point. It says you have everything. You don't need anything else. Now, Paul refers a lot to to contemporary philosophers and philosophy i mentioned about socrates this is another statement this this idea i didn't emphasize it earlier where he says all things belong to you and he repeats it at the end of verse 22 all things belong to you so it's it's he's emphasizing that idea this is a stoic thought an an idea of not so much of of as he develops it a dependency on god all these things are ours because of our connection with christ who is who is god's the stoics would present it all things are yours. So you're self-sufficient. You don't need anything outside of yourself. You are it. And they have a word uh, that essentially means uh, self-sufficient. And Paul uses it a couple of times in a different sense. But the Stoics would use it in a sense, no, you don't need anything else. You've got it all. And Paul says, you, don't have, you have it all, but you have it through Christ. And that's where the philosophers wouldn't, wouldn't want to honor that. They would say, no, we've got it our, our own selves. And Paul directs all these things, present and future, to, to our relationship to Christ. He talks about the things that are coming. And again, it's not to say that, you know, we can, if we think about things that will happen, uh, I forget the name that we can attach to that idea, but it, it's the things that are coming, not this this present evil age. In fact, Galatians 1 and verse 4, we read recently, Christ gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. So there's a rescuing aspect that's going on in the future time that we look forward to that time of God's victory obvious victory over all these things we celebrate it to a certain degree now but we look forward to that final uh, fulfillment so again here in verses 21 and 22 and 23 he presents this change of analogy instead of you belonging to these teachers teachers belong to you as well as the world and life and death and the present and the future they belong to the saints the saints of god and then here in verse 23 you belong to christ you belong to Christ if you're in Christ, if Christ dwelling within you, if you have expressed faith in him, as, uh, if you have turned away from your sins, if you have acknowledged that he is the only Savior, the only sufficient Savior, if you have acknowledged, and he's going to return to this idea in chapter 6, you have been bought. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. And you think, well, how much did you pay for me again? My own son died for you. It's not gold or silver or, or bulls or calves or lambs or... No, it is Christ who died for you. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 6 and 20 says, therefore glorify God in your body. He uses that idea of ownership. Christ owns us, and he uses it as a call to sanctification there in in chapter 6, rightly so. Here he's emphasizing the fact that we have a right and a, a responsibility, a stewardship over all these things it's because of our relationship with Christ. It's not because we're self-sufficient. It's not because we've got it all figured out. It's not because we have the world's wisdom. No, we, we forsake that. We become fools according to the world so we can become wise before God, which is acknowledging God's wisdom in Christ specifically. Notice it says here, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And so the last thing here, we think, well, wait a minute, Christ belongs to God. How can that be? And how is it often said that Christ? Uh, has a God, and how you know is, is this a statement of uh, that Paul is making regarding Christ's nature, or his, to use a technical term, his ontology, his his being, his essence is God? Is is uh, Paul saying that Christ is is somehow less than God and is owned by God? No, there's there's nothing of that. Uh, many other times we can affirm the deity of Christ. Many other times we can affirm the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not a statement of being or essence here. He's talking about a, uh, a a subordination of Christ in time, and that is to become human, the incarnation, the death, the burial, and the resurrection even, the glorification, receiving the glory he had before the world was, John 17. And so we, we recognize it's not Paul's not talking about the essence of Christ, he's talking about the function of Christ. Christ is the one who accomplished re- um, redemption for his people, and he is the one who presents us to God. In fact, he'll return to this idea in chapter 15 about when everything has been subjected to Christ by God, all, all things, even death itself, then Christ also will be subjected to the Father so that God may be all in all. It's the whole complete package of Christ accomplishing the Father's will, purchasing redemption for his people. We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. We belong to God. But we can't come to God except through Christ. There's no, no, we we can't just say, you know, and that's why, by the way, just because a person is a descendant, physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob does not mean they're in the kingdom of God. It does not mean that they are regenerate. Just because they have a relationship with God the Father God the Father says, you better come to me not through your own heritage, not through your own works or not works. You don't do this. You do do this. Not based on whatever. You come, as I intended, through sacrifice of Christ, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, Christ himself. And so there's that whole idea. We belong to God. We have all things because of our attachment to Christ. We belong, or all things belong to us because we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. God is all in all. Everything goes back to him. He owns everything. So again, boasting in men, how foolish is that? Boast in God, because he has every resource available to him, and he knows the difference between what is profound and what is useless. <laughs> you think that idea is, is wise? No. We give glory to Christ because he brings us to God. He restores our identity, restores our, our relationship with our Heavenly Father, our Creator, our Redeemer. We rest in him. The psalm, the song rather, uh, says... To God be the glory by Fanny Crosby says, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, not men. How foolish. Give him the glory, great things he has done. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth. Your word teaches us, it conforms us to your image, and we're grateful for that. We pray that we would be submissive to you and not striving after what the world celebrates and teaches and thinks is just so wonderful. And outthinks you. No, we want to have your thoughts. And you said we have the mind of Christ. We have your word written down. Please help us to pay attention to what you've said. And even as we are in a crazy mixed up world where so many voices are speaking and they, they sound so influential and, and and rational or reasonable. But if it's not according to your word, it's foolishness. It's futility. Please help us to be Wise as serpents, but innocent and as doves, please help us to speak your truth lovingly, graciously, compassionately, not condescendingly, not in a rude fashion. Help us to be bold, but in a way that honors you, and is honoring even to people. They're made in your image. Please help us to treat them that way. We pray that you would save. You're the only Savior, and you've only, you've given us the only means of salvation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to be your your agents of reconciliation here in this age. Help us to stand firm and boast. In Christ we pray in his name. Amen.